All right, well, we are back in Colossians chapter 1. So turn your Bibles there to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14 uh, this morning. And uh, if you remember, last week we began a sermon entitled Walking Worthy of the Lord. So this is part two of that. And if you recall, we have seen in chapter 1 of Colossians, just by way of review, that Paul is a very affirming pastor missionary, isn't he? He thanked God in verses 3 through 8 for these Colossian believers. He has heard about the spiritual fruitfulness in their life, about their faith and their love and their hope. And then, like a good pastor as well, not only does he affirm them, but he also wants to pray for them that they would continue to uh, progress and be spiritually vibrant in the Christian life. So that's what he does in verses 9 through 14. Paul prays for spiritual vibrancy for these Colossian believers that they may continue to progress and advance in the gospel. He doesn't want them to be lethargic. He doesn't want them to be passive. He doesn't want them to be complacent, but to continue to move forward. And we see the content of Paul's prayer in verse 9, did we not? Look there in verse 9, it says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's the content of Paul's prayer, that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they may continue to grow in their understanding of the character and the purposes of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the content of Paul's prayer in verse 9. And we began last week to see the goal of Paul's prayer beginning in verse 10. Look there. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. The reason for Paul's prayer, that they may grow in the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, is that they may be people who walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in all respects. That is the greatest goal for the Christian, any Christian sitting in here this morning, not just the Colossian believers, that we may be people who walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in all respects. Amen? That's what our purpose and our goal is and our passion should be. And then, having given them the goal for His prayer, in the middle of verse uh, verse 10, He begins to give a description of what this worthy walk looks like. What this worthy conduct looks like. And you know, I've been thinking a lot and saturating my mind in this passage, beloved, in the last few weeks. And I have been struck with this following truth. Our lives and the way that we live, our conduct, makes the gospel visible to the world around us. We must proclaim the content of the gospel and the message, but it must show itself in the way that we live, that we have been transformed. Our lives authenticate the validity of our profession, if you want to put it that way. And over and over again, we see on the pages of Scripture that an understanding of deep theology and doctrine should lead to sound, healthy, righteous conduct in the lives of believers. Over and over again we see this. Sound doctrine and understanding of theology leads you and I to healthy living. And I want you to see or hear some of the examples of this emphasis of the biblical authors. That if you are a person who is committed to sound doctrine and sound theology, it should be manifesting itself in the way that you live. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul after three glorious chapters in Ephesians of talking about the great plan and the purposes of God and the great blessings that God has extended to believers in and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, after that focus of the great call of God, he makes a huge transition in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, and he says this, Therefore, In light of the great calling of God, the great plan of God in your life, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he goes on to talk about what that worthy walk looks like. In other words, an understanding of deep theology, of the greatness of God and the purposes of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ should lead you and I to respond with loving obedience and conduct that is worthy of the gospel. Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul, 
affirms the Philippian believers, and then he talks about his own sufferings and his purpose and his pursuit of Christ and rejoicing in Christ and his desire to be with Christ, who is the greatest treasure of his life. And after that, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, he says this, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, Philippians, there is one thing that I want to hear about you, and that is that you are conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Sound doctrine, a sound understanding of theology leads to righteous, worthy conduct. Amen? First Peter, first Peter chapter one, Peter is expounding upon the glories of salvation to these believers and first Peter in the midst of their sufferings and their persecution. And he focuses their attention on this great salvation that they have. And then in first Peter chapter one and verse 13, he says this, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So an understanding of the great salvation that we have... And the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ and understanding of those doctrines and that gospel and that theology should lead us to sound, healthy conduct. Amen? Amen. Over and over again, we see this on the pages of Scripture. Read the rest of First Peter. And he starts to talk about the fact that in light of this great salvation, they had to be people who submit themselves as believers under the government. Under the government authorities, they love one another in their marriages. They are submissive in the context of the workplace, which at that time for them was servants and to masters. Over and over again, what Peter says, in light of this great salvation and in light of the fact that you're being persecuted, pursue conduct worthy of the gospel. Over and over again, he does that. We can't miss it. In fact, you turn back to Colossians. And the first couple of chapters focuses on, focus us on the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. But then Paul makes a transition in Colossians chapter 3, and he begins to exhort the Colossians that in light of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, they should set their eyes on the things above and walk in obedience, right? Toward one another, in their marriages, in their parenting. Over and over again, beloved, there is this reality. If you claim to be a theologian, if you claim that you're committed to sound doctrine, it must show itself in the way that you live. It is a false dichotomy to be about one theology or doctrine against practice. False dichotomy. One flows from the other. Sound doctrine or theological understanding leads one to sound, living, joyful service for Christ and for His people. And conversely, if you claim to have great knowledge of God and His Word, and we look at your life and there's no fruitfulness in your life, then we can question whether you really know as much as you think you know. This is a significant issue for us to realize and to reflect upon. For there are many different categories of groups of people sitting in here, here at Calvary Bible Church this morning, and each of us need to ask ourselves the hard questions. There are some of us who have not given our lives to Christ. And we hear these passages about walking worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in our respects. And what you need to realize is that if you haven't given your life to Christ, my friend, then you cannot be pleasing to God. There is only one Son of God who has pleased Him, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
by virtue of his perfect life, his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for your personal sins. He has risen from the dead. And only as you turn from your sins, as you repent of your sins, and you embrace Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, can you enter into a relationship by which you can be pleasing and glorifying to God. We don't come to God on our own righteousness. We come to God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We need to realize that. The only life that has ever pleased God is that of His Son. And in order for you and I to be accepted before God, we must be clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for some of you, intellectual mental knowledge must transfer to your heart so that you make a commitment to follow Christ, that you may be pleasing to the Lord in Christ. For others of us who profess to know God, but we survey our lives and there's no evident fruit in our lives, no desire to please the Lord, no active pursuit of intimacy with Jesus, no joyful pleasure in serving Christ, not characterized by love for the brethren, loving obedience to God's word. Notice I say loving obedience to God's word, not as God's command, that we don't view God's commandments as these burdensome things that we have to follow, but the loving instructions of a heavenly father for his glory and our very good. If we do not see our lives characterized by an embracing of suffering, beloved, I cannot read your heart. I, I, I don't know each and every one of you. I'm just a man. We are all human beings. None of us can read one another's hearts. But at the end of the day, we are called, each of us, 2 Corinthians 13.5, to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. We are called to do that. Read the book of James. Read the book of James, which speaks so much about the fact that genuine faith leads to loving and joyful obedience in the Christian life. And the many imperatives and commands of Scripture suggest that the Christian is called to obey God's word. So all I could tell you is that God's transforming power should be evident in your life if indeed transformation has taken place on the inside. It should show in your affections for Christ and your desires to know and to love and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It should be what patterns your life and characterizes your life. Listen, I love you and I don't want you to be deceived about where you're at with the Lord. This is a loving exhortation to examine yourself. To test yourself to see if you are truly in the faith. Is there genuine fruit in your life? Are you patterned and characterized by fruitfulness in the Christian life? For others of us, these characteristics are convicting reminders, are they not? As believers of what should mark our lives. We should be all the more challenged to strive joyfully to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all that we do. And that that is our desire as genuine Christians, is it not? Listen, it is not that you're not going to struggle. It is not that you're not going to struggle with even prevailing sins in your life. It isn't that you're going to be the perfect person. Sanctification is a process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. None of us are perfect right now. There's this process empowered by the Spirit of God, by the guidance of God's Holy Word, whereby God is making us more and more like Jesus. The issue is not perfection, beloved. The issue is progression, is it not? Progression. Do you desire to love and to serve the Lord? Then take courage. It is an evidence that the Spirit is working in your life. It is is an evidence that He's working in your life, is it not? Do you hate your sin and you want to become more and more and more holy? See, a genuine believer desires to walk worthy of the Lord. Amen? And that's what we have been, we started to see here in verses 10 through 14. We began to look at four characteristics of the worthy walk that are pleasing to the Lord. And these characteristics, I told you last week, come, come to us through four participles and the connecting words attached to them. Let me remind you of them again. Look at verse 10, in the middle of verse 10. The first one is bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in every good work. The second one is at the end of verse 10, increasing, increasing in the knowledge of God. The third one is at the beginning of verse 11, strengthened with all power. 
The other one is at the beginning of verse 12. Giving thanks. These four participles and the words attached to them describe for you and I, not just for the Colossian believers, what the worthy conduct looks like in the Christian life. And last week we saw the first two of these. We saw that the worthy walk is a productive walk. A productive walk in the middle of verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. We saw that our our greatest joy and our delight is to serve Christ by doing good for others, right? We want to honor our Lord by doing good for others. And though we may struggle at times, we want to be productive. We want to be a people who are zealous for good deeds, who are loving our brethren, as a manifestation of our love for the Lord and the way that we care for one another and we meet needs. A productive walk is what the Lord wants and that is what pleases Him if you're in Christ. Secondly, the worthy walk is a growing walk. A growing walk at the end of verse 10. He says, "...an increasing in the knowledge of God." As believers, it is our joy and our delight to know God, to draw closer to Him. We went into Philippians chapter 3, and I showed you that that desire to grow in the knowledge of God in the face of Christ was the passion of the Apostle Paul. Not only upon his conversion in Philippians chapter 3, did he count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. But then he talks about the fact that in the present, that is his passion and pursuit to continue to grow in his knowledge of Christ and intimacy with Christ. And then he talks about the future. He says that I may know him, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, he says. My past, present, and future passion, says Paul, is to know Christ. We grow in our knowledge of God by looking upon the face of Christ, do we not? Christ came that we might see God. He exegeted God for us, if you will. And we continue to grow in our knowledge of God by drawing closer to Christ and pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to be people who are characterized by a growing walk. Now thirdly, this morning, this worthy conduct or this worthy walk, thirdly, is a strong walk. It is a strong walk. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, strengthened with all power, he says. I want you to be strengthened with all power. And this is a a passive verb here. Paul is praying that God may do the strengthening. How does he do that? In and through his spirit, right? We're going to see that in a little bit. He prays that they would be strengthened with all power. And then he adds this. What is the extent of that strengthening? It is according to his glorious might. And what is the purpose of this strengthening? For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. That word all, all steadfastness, governs both steadfast and patience. So Paul says, the worthy walk, Colossians, and the worthy walk, Calvary Bible Church, is a walk that is constantly relying upon the power of God as a strong walk, a God-dependent walk. And I find it very, very interesting that Paul talks about being strengthened here. In light of what he has just said, I think there's a reason why he says this. He has just said... In verse 10, that he wants them to have a productive walk, right? A walk characterized by bearing fruit in every good work. That they might be fruitful people. And I don't know about you, but I'm constantly, constantly feeling like I am not fruitful enough. And I'm not committed to doing good works as much as I should do. I always feel like I'm falling short of that. And indeed I am. And I feel so inadequate for the task. And it's interesting here that Paul says, I want you to be strengthened with all power. In light of the fact that I've called you to bear fruit in every good work, you must be people who are God-dependent, who are being strengthened with all power. It's, It's a lovely positioning, isn't it? The other thing is that he talked about a growing walk, increasing in the knowledge of God. The more what happens... The last 22 or 23 years that I walk with the Lord, and some of you have walked with the Lord a lot longer than I have. What happens the more you walk with God and the more you get to know God and His character and His purposes and all of His instructions in and through His Word? I don't know about you, but I feel so inadequate. 
so insignificant. The more I behold the character of this God and His majesty and His glory and His perfections and how much I fall short of those perfections, I am humbled and broken before Him because I realize that in the, in the, in the eyes of this God, I am nothing. I am nothing. Or in comparison to Him and His glory and His majesty. And I'm driven to feel inadequate and insignificant. May I say to you, beloved, that that's exactly where God wants you and I to be. As we behold His beauty and His majesty on the pages of His holy word, we grow and we increase in the knowledge of God and His standard and what He calls us to in loving obedience. The more inadequate and the more needy we become, the more we are propelled to come to Him, right? To seek His power and His strengthening. It's a lovely positioning here. Why Paul says, I want you to be people characterized by being strengthened with all power. In light of the fact that you've been called to be fruitful people. In light of the fact that you're growing in the knowledge of God. And you're recognizing your unworthiness before this holy God. You need strength. I don't know about you, but I need strength for the Christian life. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, Campus... You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what kind of service God has called me to. You don't even understand the types of things that God has called me to do. I need strength. You don't understand the severity of the circumstances I'm going through. Listen, beloved, it does not matter. God is able to strengthen you with all power. And that's why Paul prays for this, that they may be strengthened And no matter what you're going through in life, you need to recognize this. God has an unlimited, immeasurable reservoir of power, does He not? Unlimited. In fact, He highlights this. The extent of this power is highlighted by Paul in verse 11 when he says, According to His glorious might. God's power is so magnificent and so great and so infinite and so immeasurable and so perfect that Paul has to say his glorious might. Listen, Paul adds glorious to emphasize the grandeur and the majesty of God's infinite power. The power that God supplies his children is in accordance with his intrinsic glory. He's a glorious God. Unlimited power. Unlimited might for His people and those who humbly depend upon Him. And we can go to Him. The power that God supplies His children is in accordance with His intrinsic glory. Suppose for a minute that you personally or your family were to have a major catastrophe and you lost it all. And you went bankrupt You don't have anything. Maybe you have some kids in there and you're wondering, how in the world are we going to make it? And some multi-billionaire finds out about what happened to you and that you're in need. And this multi-billionaire decides to give you one million dollars. One million dollars. Is that a lot of money? That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money for us. He gives you one million dollars. And for us, that's a lot of money. But for him, it's chunk change, right? A penny. It's nothing. Because he has an abundance of, of, of billions of dollars. The reason why he's able to give you a million dollars is because he's a billionaire. And he's able to give you lavishly in accordance with his billions, is he not? In accordance with his billions. He has quite a reservoir of money from which he can draw from. Listen, beloved, in an infinitely greater way, God has an immeasurable, unlimited reservoir of power, and He's more than able to get you through in life, is He not? More than able to do that. And Paul says, I pray that you may be strengthened in accordance with His glorious might. In accordance with His unlimited power, He's able to do this. Oh, Paul loves to emphasize the power of God. He loves to emphasize the power of God. Back in Ephesians chapter 3, one of my favorite, favorite passages in Ephesians chapter 3, 
Paul is concluding the three chapters in Ephesians, talking about the great calling of God and His great plans and purposes and the great spiritual blessings that He has He has given believers in and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's so enthralled by everything that he has said that he starts to magnify the power of God, the doing of God, if you will. And in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, he says this, Now to him who is able to do... And Paul can't even find the words to describe the great power of God that he starts piling up words one on top of another to describe the doing of God. Look at this. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond, and in case he's missed something, all that we ask or think. And then listen to this. According to the power that works within us. According to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul can't even find the words. So he piles up terms to try to describe the majestic, glorious power of God in its unlimited nature. You can't even measure it. And if you turn back a page in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is talking about his ministry. That he was given. And that ministry to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ was not something that Paul initiated on his own. In chapter 3 of Ephesians verse 7 he says, Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. It was a gift of God that Paul had given him this ministry to proclaim the gospel. But listen, Paul is not going to do this ministry or serve Christ on his own strength, is he? He says in the middle of verse 7, which was given to me according to the working of His power. Paul says, God has given me a ministry to preach to the Gentiles and He's given me the strength to do it. God never gives you something to do in serving Him that He's not going to provide the strength to accomplish, right? And that's why Paul prays in Ephesians 3 verse 14, look there, that they would be strengthened with power. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and verse 16, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through who? His Spirit in the inner man. He says, I want to pray that you may be strengthened in the power of the Spirit of God. Paul was a man who understood that he was just a man. And he had been called with a great calling in the gospel. And he had a great mission to accomplish. And yet he functioned and operated God-dependent under the power of God, beloved. And we must do the same thing too, right? We must be dependent. I want to ask you this morning, do you feel inadequate, weak to live the Christian life? You desire to be as fruitful as you grow in knowing God, but you feel so small, so inadequate, like you just can't do enough for your Lord. If that is your heart, be comforted. God has an infinite reservoir of power, especially in the hard times, for you to be able to serve Him. He's able to do that. We need to ask Him, right? That's the whole purpose of what Paul is doing. He's praying that God may strengthen them and empower them by the by His Spirit so that they may understand that they're able to accomplish anything for Christ if He's called you to something by the Spirit's power. But we must be humble enough to ask Him for that. Now listen, Christians understand that the Christian life is not problem-free, is it? We suffer. They're suffering. I don't understand the prosperity gospel guys. I I don't think that they've read the end of Philippians amongst many other passages. Philippians chapter 1 verses 29 through 30 where it says, For to you it has been granted not only to believe in Him, but also to what? Suffer for His sake. The Christian life is not a suffer-free life. Oh no. Uh Uh-uh. Not at all. There is a war going on now, and we recognize that we're going to suffer. And Paul, in the midst of of praying that they would be strengthened with all of God's glorious might, he talks about the purpose 
for which they need sustaining power. Notice in verse 11. Why or for what purpose does God provide this sustaining power? He says in verse 11, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. In short, God provides His sustaining power to you, listen to me, so that you will be able to suffer well in the Christian life. You say, where do you get that about suffering? The two words that He uses here, steadfastness and patience. He says, first of all, I want you to be strengthened with God's glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness. The word steadfast means to bear up under difficult circumstances. It was used of an advancing army holding the position or territory already taken in battle. What Paul is speaking of here is the ability to endure or bear up under the most difficult situations and circumstances. What comfort for us that God is able, more than able, to provide you with the strength and the power to endure the present difficult circumstances, beloved, that you're going through. He's more than able to do that. Spiritual affliction, marital problems, parenting issues, physical problems, feeling unworthy of doing anything. God is more than able to strengthen you and to grant you perspective. Amen? He's more than able to do that. To be steadfast in difficult circumstances. And notice he says, patience. And the word all and all steadfastness governs both of these words. All steadfastness and all patience. The word patience is used in chapter 3 of Colossians and verse 12. Where Paul instructs the Colossians to put on a heart of patience toward one another. Or long-suffering toward one another. The word uh, long-suffering has to do with the ability to endure difficult people. You got those in your life? Okay, I guess you guys are perfect or something. You guys are always harmonious with each other. We all have that, don't we? We all have those difficult people. I define patience or long-suffering like this. Patience or long-suffering is the spirit-empowered ability to suffer long with the most difficult of people. It doesn't come natural to us, does it? To suffer long with difficult people. It's a spirit-empowered thing, beloved. That's why long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit, is it not? Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. We need the Spirit's empowering to endure difficult relationships. It is said of God in Exodus 34, 6, that He is a God slow to anger, specifically toward those who sin and rebel against Him. And that's the idea, isn't it? It's easy to suffer long with those who treat us well, who pat us on the back. A lot harder, in fact, humanly impossible to endure those who hurt us or who are our enemies. Impossible. That's why we need the strengthening of God, do we not? We need to be strengthened by Him. We need His enabling grace. So what Paul is saying here is that he wants them to be so strengthened, so empowered by God, that they would experience all steadfastness and all patience. He wants them to be absolutely, completely, victoriously enduring suffering, both in difficult circumstances, i.e. steadfast and difficult relationships, i.e. patience. And because God has an infinite, immeasurable reservoir of power, beloved, you as a believer can be strengthened to suffer well in this life. Amen? He's more than able to do that. More than able to do that. Beloved, we all have difficult circumstances that we're going through. We all do. Loss of loved ones. Loss of a job. Difficult financial situations. Difficult neighborhoods that we may live in. We all have relational struggles, marriage issues, difficulties with kids, differences between brethren. We all have them. God is more than able to strengthen us so that we may endure those, beloved, and be able to have a right Christ-exalting perspective in the midst of those difficult situations, in the midst of those relational struggles. God is more than able to do that. Have you sought God... And His face relentlessly that He would strengthen you and give you perspective to deal with those difficult circumstances and difficult relationships. Are you going to God for those things? Oftentimes, we do not have because we do not what? Ask. God is more than able to do that. 
And not only that, but every good work, every act of service that God calls you to perform, beloved, He will provide you with the sufficient enabling grace to accomplish it. Right? He will. He will do that. But we must be dependent upon Him and rely upon His resources. That's why Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in yourself. Is that what it says? Finally, my brethren, be strong in your inherent strength. Manufacture some strength from within. What does he say? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And then he starts talking about the, in, the amazing resources that are called the spiritual armor. God has given us everything that we need to stand firm against the wiles and the schemes of the devil, has he not? Everything. And then he talks about prayer there, seeking God's face and being God-dependent Ephesian believers. So we must ask the Lord, beloved. The worthy walk is a productive, growing Strong in the Lord walk. Fourthly, it is a thankful walk. It is a thankful walk. Notice what he says at the end of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. Think about, what he, think about that exhortation. Perhaps you've never thought about this. That the life worthy of the Lord that is pleasing to Him is a life by which you as a believer are joyfully thankful to God the Father as a consistent pattern of your life. We all struggle with joy, do we not? And we do things most often than not out of duty rather than delight and joy. God wants us to be people who are characterized by joyful attitude to God the Father. And over the course of Colossians, Paul emphasizes the importance of thanksgiving. In chapter 1 and verse 3, we've seen he, he's, he thanks God for these Colossian believers. Paul is a thankful guy. Most of his letters open up with him being offering thanksgiving to God the Father for his work in the lives of believers. And not only that, but here he's saying that you ought to be giving thanks in chapter 1 and verse 12. Look in chapter 2 of Colossians and verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, or conduct yourself in accordance to Him, or lead your life in Christ, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with what? Gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude. Look at chapter 3 and verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. As believers, we are to, have our, we are to be saturated with a desire to thank the Lord in and through Jesus Christ for everything that He has done for us. That's what's to characterize and pattern our lives to be thankful people. What about in our prayers? Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Our prayers must be saturated and focused upon giving thanks to our Heavenly Father. We have a lot to give thanks for, do we not? A lot, beloved. A lot. How many of you, when you wake up in the morning, you simply just, even if you're in a hurry and you're rushed for work or whatever, that you actually utter a prayer and say, Lord, thank you so much that today my organs work properly in such a way that I'm able to breathe and walk and my bones are able to move around. The older that you get, the more you appreciate that, right? Right? Amen? The older that you get, the more you appreciate that. The younger that you are, the more you take that for granted. But later on, things start hurting in places that you never imagined you even had. How many of us wake up and say, Lord, thank you for the fact that you've allowed me to wake up and be able to breathe one more day. Life. You've given me life and breath. How many of us thank the Lord for sustaining us with the basic needs of life? One thing that I learned working at Children's Hunger Fund for six years and going to some of these places in other countries... 
Seen orphans who lacked the basic necessities of life. And seen people in very real poverty-stricken areas, beloved. Lacking the basic needs of life. Is that I needed to make sure that I made a conscious effort myself and with my family. That I would give God thanks every single day for the basic needs of life. For food and clothing and water and shelter. Most countries don't have clean water. Do you know that? We take it for granted every single morning that we wake up. It's clean water. And we just by faith trust that that water coming over our heads is going to be clean. Most places are not that way. And yet God still takes care of people that way. In and through His church. And I saw that as well. But how many of us just simply thank God for the basic needs of life? How many of us thank God for sustaining the universe and the world in which we live? Do you realize that God allows everything to maintain a glorious and intricate balance so that you and I don't fly off the face of the world? I mean, God is the one that does that. We have so much to give thanks for doing that. So much. And yet, I want you to notice what he says in verse 12. The supreme motivation for why Christians are to give thanks is namely because of God's great salvation of sinners. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I love the variety of ways that the biblical authors describe salvation in all of its facets. It's like looking at salvation as if it was a beautiful diamond. And in different passages, they're looking at that diamond called salvation from different perspectives or angles. And I love the terminology of Paul here to describe salvation. Notice here, the Colossian believers are to joyfully give thanks to the Father who in salvation has qualified them. Qualified them. The word means to make adequate, to make sufficient, to make worthy. It is the same idea or word that Paul is conveying in 2 Corinthians 3.6, where he says that God makes us adequate to be servants and not we ourselves. God has qualified us. God has made us worthy or adequate, beloved, in salvation. Do you realize that? Do you give thanks to God for that? We all can think of examples, right? Of being not qualified or being disqualified. We all can think of those examples. I will never forget hearing about the seminary guy pre my time at seminary who went through seminary and all of the hardship and the hard study that you have to go through in seminary and the sacrifice for your family. And he showed up on Mother's Day to the seminary graduation And I don't think that his wife was there with him. I could be wrong. But after the graduation, he went home. And in his master bedroom, on top of his bed, were all of his books, theology books, stacked on his bed with a note that essentially said, you love your books more than me, then you can live with them. And she left him. She left him. That brother was instantly not qualified to enter pastoral ministry. He was disqualified. We can all think of those examples, right? How frightening that is. Or even in little things in life, we might not qualify for a particular thing. Listen, in a greater way, beloved, in salvation, God, the only reason why you've entered into the kingdom of God's beloved son is because God has made you sufficient. God has qualified you. He has done that. What has he qualified us for? Notice in verse 12. The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I love these words, share and inheritance, which are basically parallel words. Do you remember during the period of conquest in the Old Testament? Under the leadership of Joshua? And the Israelites went in and and took possession of the land? And upon having done that, every single tribe was given a portion or a share in the land that they were to be caretakers of and completely eliminate any rebels in that particular share of their own land. That's the picture here. We are sharers. God has given us a portion in His kingdom of inheritance. 
But so starkly different than in the Old Testament, this portion or share is permanent, is it not? It's permanent. It's protected. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says that our, we have a hope laid up for us in heaven. Where a place where, where, where our inheritance cannot be touched. This inheritance is waiting for us. And we understand that we haven't fully possessed that inheritance or that share or that portion in the here and now. But we experience some of the blessings, do we not? Of that inheritance or that portion that God has extended to us. Having qualified us to receive it. We experience personal intimacy with Christ and His comfort and His joy and His hope and His peace and His kindness and His mercy. Because we have put our faith in Christ. And we understand that the fullness, the full fruition of that portion or share that God has qualified us to receive will one day culminate when Jesus returns. But we experience those blessings now, do we not? So beautiful. But notice, in verse 12, this inheritance is not for everyone, is it? This share or this portion is not for everyone because he says in verse 12, it is the inheritance of the saints in light. Saints means holy ones. Those whom God has set apart from sin to live unto righteousness in the service of Christ. And consequently, if God has set you aside from sin to live unto righteousness, you are a dweller of light. You dwell in the realm of light. And to be a dweller in the realm of light means that you're holy and sanctified and righteous because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, right? In 1 John 1, 5, the Apostle John says, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. What do you mean, John? That God is holy and righteous and perfect. He has no sin whatsoever. Jesus, speaking about Himself in John eight twelve, says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light who has come into a dark world, a world full of corruption and wickedness. He's the holy and righteous one, beloved. And those who are his saints, who are his set-apart ones, are dwellers in the realm of light. We're the holy ones. We're the righteous ones. Not because of our inherent holiness, but because of our we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, right? So Paul says... I want you to joyfully give thanks because God has qualified you, made you sufficient and adequate to be holy and inheritors in the realm of light, is what he's saying. We have so much to give thanks to God for, right? But our salvation, the fact that God has qualified you, beloved, has made you adequate and has given you a portion and a share of his inheritance, should be our, we should constantly be thanking God for that. And yet we're such a thankless people. Constantly complaining about what we don't have. Amen? Constantly grumbling. Constantly complaining. Instead of giving thanks to God that He's qualified us. Now what exactly did God do in order to qualify us to be inheritors of our future hope? Well, verse 13 elaborates on what Paul has said in verse 12. By highlighting the specific and the beautiful saving work of God. Can I remind you, once upon a time, Kempis Hernandez was lost and in a terrible predicament from which I could not be rescued in and of myself. At one point in time, that's where we were all in a terrible predicament, beloved, terrible predicament. There was nothing you could do for yourself because a spiritually dead sinner cannot raise himself, can he? Cannot do that. God must intervene. So we were in a terrible predicament at one point in time. You know, we can find illustrations from our own life where we have been in terrible predicaments, have we not? We can all find those examples. I'll never forget my buddy who told me that one day, I think it was the late 80s or early 90s, that they decided to do a conference in Chiapas, Mexico, one of the most hostile places to the gospel. And in the midst of doing this conference for 200 plus people, some gangsters from the area decided that they were going to lock all of these believers in that church building and they were going to burn them to death. 
And there was nothing that they could do because all of these gangsters were armed men. They were in a terrible predicament. Imagine the desperation where they, all they could see from a human standpoint is that they were going to die. And yes, in those moments they were trusting in the Lord that they would enter into God's presence, but there was fear. Have you ever experienced that? To be in a terrible predicament like that? And would you believe they prayed to the Lord and within time, authorities showed up and they got into a shootout with these gangsters, killed them, and they were able to rescue them all. Imagine, imagine the terrible desperation that they must have felt and yet the glory of being rescued, the glory of the rescue operation from those authorities. Beautiful. You know, often when I look at my own life testimony, I, at the age of seven years old, my mother was murdered in front of me. But months before that murder, my grandmother had visited my mom, and my mom had made this grandmother promise that if anything ever happened to her, that my grandmother could come and get me and rescue me because she knew that I would not be taken care of if something ever happened to her. And weeks later, when my mom was murdered, I remember feeling a sense of desperation. My mom's gone. I'm in this terrible predicament. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? But how glorious when my grandmother showed up one day, some two weeks later, and this little old lady God used to rescue me from a desperate situation in Mexico City. I give thanks to the Lord for that. And it reminds me in an infinitely greater way of the rescue operation of Almighty God of each of us as believers. Look at what he says in verse 13. For he, God the Father, rescued us. Rescued us from what? From the domain of darkness. The implication here is a rescue from a condition that you and I could not help ourselves. There was nothing that we could do. We were helpless. And yet God stepped in into this rescue operation to initiate it. And what did he rescue us from? Notice in verse 13. From the domain of darkness. Notice that. Not from poverty, like the prosperity gospel says. Not from emotional distress. Not from financial scarcity. From the realm of darkness. We were darkness dwellers, beloved. Darkness is Satan's domain, is it not? Satan is the God of this world. And prior to God stepping in, we were enslaved to Satan and his wicked domain. We were dwellers of the dark side. That's where we were. When you look back at your life, that's who you were before Christ. Completely enslaved to the domain of darkness. And you needed somebody to step in and rescue you. Do you remember how at one time you were on that dark side? Do you remember those days? We were enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. And it showed in the way that we pursued sin and wickedness. We pursued vanity, our resources and our possessions and our time was all after things of no eternal value whatsoever. Pursuit of pleasure and money, personal gain, prosperity for selfish purposes. Listen, we exploited people who would give us what we wanted, right? That's what our our life was characterized for, beloved. We were darkness dwellers. Do you remember the pleasure that things brought to you momentarily? But then after it was, there was regret and guilt and emptiness because none of those things could save you, right? Or satisfy you. That's what characterized our life. And later on, right? After a little momentary pleasure and then feeling guilty over it, we would go right back to the mire again. To experience those things again and start the vicious cycle all over again. For some of us, we know what it was like and we remember what it was like to be a darkness dweller. The video keeps playing in our minds of those sins and that wickedness and how we exploited other people. That video keeps playing and glory to God that He stepped in, did He not? (laughs) Listen to Ephesians chapter 2 and personalize it for yourself. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says this, And you, Kempis Hernandez, were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And then what happened? But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, notice that, even in our rebellion, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast." Glory to God for His salvation, beloved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish or dwell in the domain of darkness, but have everlasting life. That should lead us and propel us to joyful thanksgiving, should it not? How glorious that God has stepped in, beloved, because of His great love and mercy to rescue us. And notice... Verse 13, he says that he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The idea there is that he transplanted us. Have you ever done that? Dug up a plant from the the root up and you dig a hole in a different location and you cultivate that ground and you plant that little plant there or that tree and it bears much fruit as you water it and it produces abundant fruit. That is the picture of what God has done. He transplanted you, took you from this terrible place and domain of darkness and put you in a completely different place, the realm of light. That's what God has done because of His love and His mercy, not because there's anything inherently valuable in you and I. He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, literally the Son of His love. The Son is the object of the Father's love. The one who has perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. Perfect life. Suffering for the sins of His people. Risen from the dead. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it is by faith in Christ and that atoning sacrifice for your personal sins. Not for the sins of Pilate from 2,000 years ago. Not for the sins of the Romans from 2,000 years ago. Not due to the religious Jews who put Jesus on the cross. Because of your personal sins, Jesus died and He rose from the dead. But He has atoned for your sins. My friend, turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ that you may be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We who have trusted in Christ, who have turned from our sins, are citizens of the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And notice what He says. In whom, in this Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Present tense, we have redemption. He's saying this is an existing reality for those who are in Christ. They have redemption in Christ, the forgiveness of sins. The term redemption is a beautiful term. It points to a transaction in the marketplace by which a slave was released from slavery to serve another. To be redeemed means to be redeemed from slavery or bought out from slavery and bondage and imprisonment. That is a picture of salvation, beloved. Christ came to redeem sinners from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, right? Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Jesus paid the price necessary for you to be free from slavery to sin. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Matthew 10.45 Salvation, listen to me, may come free to us. It is by the grace of God. It is a free gift offered to us, not based upon any merit or anything that we've done, but it certainly did not come free to God the Father, did it? 
He had to put His Son on the cross and pour out the fullness of His wrath for our personal sins upon His own Son. It wasn't free to God. This is why Romans 3.24 says that we are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom... Jesus, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. You know what propitiation means? A wrath-appeasing or wrath-satisfying sacrifice. Jesus upon Himself took the righteous indignation for your personal sins, beloved. Not the Jew, the religious Jews of 2,000 years ago. Your sins and my sins. By the shedding of His blood. By the shedding of His blood. The price of our salvation is the shed blood of Christ on Calvary, right? That's why 1 Peter 1.18 says that you and I were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from our futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It was because of the shed blood of Christ that we are here, beloved. So notice, redemption is in Christ alone. Without Christ, without putting your faith and your trust in Christ unreservedly, surrendering your sin before the cross and embracing Christ and His righteousness, there is no redemption. There is no freedom in transferring from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Without putting your faith in Christ, there's no redemption. He's the only one that has satisfied the fullness of God's wrath and taken upon Himself the punishment for our sins. Only in Christ. Notice also that forgiveness is granted through the redemption of Christ. And to ask for God's forgiveness implies that you would acknowledge your offense, that you would take ownership of your sin. To confess your sin means to say the same thing about your sin that God's That God says that your sin is an affront to a holy God. It's not a mistake. It's not a different way of looking at things. It's an offense before a holy God. It's rebelling against God. It's an affront against His holy character. And your sin and my sin estrange us from God. If you are not in Christ, you're an enemy of God. For reconciliation to take place... It means that you and I must acknowledge that we're a sinner in need of forgiveness. And we must recognize that God's holy and just character required a payment. And Jesus did that on the cross for our sins, that by trusting in Him, we can be forgiven this morning if you're here and you're not in Christ. And I plead with you that you would give your life to Christ. This message demands a response, do you understand? It requires a response of obedient faith in Christ. A surrendering of self-trust and a transferring of our trust to Christ for everything. Listen to me. If you're a darkness dweller this morning, recognize that one day there won't be any longer a kingdom of darkness. One day there won't be that anymore. Only eternal separation and unceasing punishment in hell for those who have rejected God's beloved Son and His sacrifice for sins. But you can be no longer a darkness dweller, right? You can be a citizen of the kingdom. For God so loved the world that He what? He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And beloved, for those of us who are Christians, what a great salvation. What a great and loving God. Amen? Paul says in verses 12 through 14, God, our Father, is a generous God who has been utterly generous to His people by saving us, and this should lead us to joyful thanksgiving. And this is why the Christians in the early church in Acts, in the midst of persecution and suffering, it says that they went away rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for His name. Why? Because they were those who were citizens of the kingdom of light, right? Right? They knew that. Even if they died, if they perish, they perish. 
They're going to spend the rest of eternity enjoying the inheritance and the portion that God had given them. This is the point of verses 12 through 14. God wants a joyful and thankful people who live well under our trials and our sufferings and the light of His grace displayed in salvation, beloved. He wants us to be joyfully thankful people. That we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, of His Son, pleasing His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in every respect. Conducting ourselves in a productive way. Having a growing walk, a strong walk, and a joyfully thankful walk. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, You are a glorious God. We are so joyful and thankful, Lord. You, in the midst of of a wicked and perverse generation, have given us hope. Lord, help us to be joyful, thankful people. Help us to be people who are God-dependent, that we would look to You for the, the enabling strength and grace to get through sufferings and suffer well with joy. That we would recognize that you have never called us to do anything, to serve you in any capacity, and not provide the strength for us to be able to accomplish that. Oh, Lord, help us to be fruitful people. Help us to be people who are growing in the knowledge of you and seeing your beauty and your majesty and beholding your great power and your holiness and your justice and your righteousness. Help us as we behold you, Lord, to all the more love you and serve you and desire to tell others about you, Lord. We ask you all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.